your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we as a church, Lord, we, we want that to be our heartbeat. Our heartbeat not to be our comfort, not to be our preference, but that our heartbeat would be the hallowing of your name, the glorifying of your name, and that our prayer would be that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. Lord, we thank you for your providential care for the church in, in providing Chuck and Alec and the other elders. And we also, pray, we also thank you for your providential leading of Vince and Christy and in leading them to this place and opening these doors. And Lord, we joyfully as a church want to say, your will be done. So Lord, I pray that as we open your word, uh, that you would lay the claim of your word on our lives today, that we would be served as we explore and consider your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Now, I don't know how much you guys are into the graffiti street art scene, is that, that I know it's got some we got some some bit, some people really into that. Yeah, the, yeah, it's big in, che- in in the Czech Republic. In 1990, a sticker began appearing on urban streets. It was black and white with a portrait of a serious face and the word "obey" on it. Sometimes the word obey appeared by itself. Sometimes overnight, an entire billboard would be painted white and replaced simply with a giant, iconic obey image. You can see it right there on the screen. This, that, there was one notable one where there was this major billboard that everyone could see, and, and the artist overnight painted it white, giant face on it with the word obey. This was the work of street artist Shepard Ferry, who has been called by some an annoyance, by some a vandal, by some an iconic performance artist. And despite efforts to stop him, Shepard Ferry's work became a movement, and Obey stickers spread across the United States in the 90s and 2000s. Now, Ferry, people have asked, well, what does that mean? What's the meaning of this Obey thing? Ferry has said in different places that the work was in, in, in some sense a protest to the constant messaging of advertising everywhere. The messages in society that people take for granted. Every message saying, drink this drink, watch this show, vote for this candidate, right? And he he said that his art was meant to make people aware of the constant messages that they were receiving from around them. In fact, that the real message in, in, in much of the media around us is just, Obey, drink this, do this, vacation here. You know, I was thinking about getting a drink. Drink this drink, right? This, this is what he's trying to help us see. He says in his manifesto that the work was to enable people to see clearly something that is right before their eyes. Now, today, our text will enable us to see something clearly that is right before our eyes, but something we often miss. Here's the headline. Revelation 13 says that we are being controlled. We are being coerced. We are being 
influence and we don't even know it. We are being pushed to obey without realizing. So the key question of the text is this, who will you obey? Now, I want you to keep that headline in mind because Revelation 13 has some of the most controversial things in Revelation. If you've been wondering, when are we going to get to the beast out of the sea stuff today? When are we going to get to the 666 today? And it's all the more important then for us to understand the context of those things in in context with Revelation. As one of the scholars said, you you can't understand the details of Revelation without understanding the whole of Revelation. So this is going to be really a flyover of of 13 and 14, but I, I hope in that flyover it will help us get the main message, and then we can endlessly talk about the uh, 666 later. Three sections today. The first, the first beast attack. Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. For he'd given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty, blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now, what do we make of this? Well, remember the chapter 12 was all about the dragon, Satan, warring against God's people. But now he wars against God's people through his agents to whom he gives authority. This this first agent is the beast. And the beast's goal is, verse 14, to get people to worship, uh, sorry, verse 8, to get people to worship the dragon, even though they don't even know that they're doing it. Now, who or what is the beast? I'll tell you. Well, remember this apocalyptic literature, right? So, so it is symbolic, and look at the symbols. The symbols are the leopard, the bear, the lion. They all point to different beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, it was a list of governing authorities, a succession of governing authorities uh, that God's people would experience. But this beast seems to have characteristics of all of those beasts in one. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s like I did or the 80s, Think of it this way. The be- this beast is like a giant evil Voltron where all the other beasts come together and form this giant, you know, or uh, Power Rangers, anybody? I don't know. I- I'm losing my cultural relevance as we speak. 
what you're meant to see is that all those characteristics are present. So this beast represents, in a sense, the, the culmination in a, of the evil succession of governments in Daniel chapter 7. So this is reinforced in the symbolism of the crowns and revelation representing a ruling or governing authority. So this beast represents the symbolism of evil government and evil rulers arrayed against God. Now, the question, though, is, okay, so a lot of people are like, hey, I'm with you so far. When will the beast come? This is a really important question. Remember that Revelation 12, in a sense, just reset the clock. Revelation 12 took us all the way back to Jesus' incarnation and ascension. Remember that? And the, the dragon is warring against the church. Well, this then is another angle of looking at the dragon's war against the church. Uh, this is the time period between Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension and his eventual return. This is what Jesus called the last days. So some read the beast as being a Roman emperor, maybe Nero. Uh, Jesus, uh, well, sorry, the, some read the beast as being a Roman emperor, probably Nero, but they would acknowledge, okay, well, if it's Nero... It seems like that's just going to be the, Nero is the pattern of rulers that will occur until the end. Or other people say, no, 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 it's not Nero. It's the, the government at the end of history, but leading up to it, we're going to have probably a succession of governments that look more and more like that until the final culminating evil government. And some people say, no, it's just represents evil government between ascension and return. So which is it? Well, there's good textual interpretation uh, kind of clues for any of these, but I don't think any of those three interpretations change the basic meaning of Revelation 13 or its function in the life of the Christian, meaning this. We are to be aware that between Jesus' ascension and return, the dragon will war against the church through evil rulers and governments. The Apostle John warned in one of his letters, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What is John saying? John is saying, listen, that there are already people arrayed against Christ that are Antichrist. And they will continue. So, this beast arrives between the time of Jesus' ascension and return, first in Nero, but in kind of imaged in every evil government since then, and then probably culminating in one final evil government. But, but there's one detail of the beast that is compelling and interesting and incredibly important. The mortal wound. What does that mean? Now, well, some of it uh, is, is that it's, it's the beast and the second, the first and second beast have aspects that are like Jesus in order to deceive people. But there's another, I think, thing going on with the mortal wound. Um, many scholars place the writing of Revelation after the death of Nero. So, and, and in many ways, the church breathed a sigh of relief, like, oh, thank goodness, Nero's gone We'll never have another evil government like that again, right? But in a sense, Revelation is warning, no, 
it may seem as though evil government has been dealt a death blow only for it to rise again, right? Death blow, rise again. Nero, dead, someone takes his place. Hitler, dead. With, with, with the, the death of Hitler, has the world finally gotten rid of evil dictator rulers? No, right? Mortal wound, but keeps living. Each time they're defeated, they rise again. And look at what he does to the church. It says the beast will persecute the church. Now, some of this is explicit in Revelation 2 and 3, as you've been studying in your community groups. Revelation 2 and 3, there were several churches experiencing active persecution. Some of the believers were in jail. All probably of the apostles of the the 12 in Acts 2 have been killed except for John by this time. So if you want to think of it this way in terms of, of, of geopolitics, this beast represents the hard power, the the attack power, the governmental power arrayed against the church. Now, I want to clarify something for us in America, because we're already like, yeah, we don't like the government either. We started our country getting rid of one government. Uh, And so how does this relate to us? Well, obviously, for us as Christians, there's some distinctions between the first century and today. Uniquely, in world history, really, we have some part in the governance of our country. And so there are good Bible verses helping us to see how a government should function. And we should, in, in, in whatever ways we can, uh, seek to argue for and push for government that is godly and accords with Scripture. But what happens is this. Sometimes Christians, will, there'll be Christians over here, and the government will be over here, and Christians will be like, Government, you should do this. And the government will say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Christians will say, we're being persecuted, right? That's not Romans 13. This is Romans 13. The government over here says, you must do this or die or jail or whatever. And over here, Christians must say, no, we will not. That is. Now, there's other parts, you know, again, Romans 13, other sections that govern how Christians should advocate that their government operate. Romans 13 is about the government forcing Christians to do things, and especially in view, is denying their faith in Jesus, right? This, sadly, is the norm for many Christians in countries around the world. Pastors in China, jailed, that disappear. Pastors in parts of India, attacked and endorsed by the local governments. Pastors in Africa, beheaded. Pastors in the Middle East, persecuted or killed. And this is not, I don't think, the predominant type of attack against the church in America right now. I think there's another one, which is the second one. But we must be prepared for this. Revelation, I think, lays out that the norm for Christians is that government will often be opposed to them in their faith. What we have enjoyed in America is an aberration, not the norm. And so what we have to do is we have to, as Christians, we have to be prepared. We must be prepared to lose our money, to lose our freedom, to lose our jobs, to lose our lives. We must prepare our kids for the same. And you may be thinking, okay, does Ricky have some inside information? 
something coming down the pike. I know we got some government people here. No, I, I don't think we're on the verge of being rounded up and detained in the desert. But I do think often as Christians, this isn't even a functional category for me. They're almost like, what, man, if, if the government's telling me to do this and, and it's against my faith, then I must be doing something wrong. And Revelation says, no, cling to your faith in Jesus. This will be a pattern. What should our response be? Well, the, the call is explicit. It says, if, verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And here's the call. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The call, as we see the beast, as we see the attack, is this. Endure in faith in Christ. This is what we saw in Revelation 11 with the witnesses. The pattern is this. We follow the lamb who conquers by his slaying. The church follows the lamb and conquers even in their slaying. We must endure at times even deadly attack. Look, this is the way I I think about it, right? For us in America, um, my granddad was he, he was a general contractor. He did all kinds of things. He was always working with his hands. But if you shook my granddad's hand, or if he, I remember as a kid, he'd hold my hand and kind of lead me somewhere. Okay, Scooter, we're going in the backyard. He would call me Scooter because he was from the South, and they just make up crazy names. And so Scooter, we're going to the South. And his hand felt different than other people. His hand had calluses on it. You know what I'm saying? Like these were hands that had been worked and cracked and repaired over and over and over again, torn up and, and split and healed over. And so when he gripped your hand, and he had quite a grip too, it felt different. This is, if I could sum up in a picture what I think this is calling us to do as Americans, we as Americans need to get more calloused hands when it comes to following Jesus. In our grip on Christ... We're often like, the, the rope starts to pull a little bit. We're like, ah, I'm getting a rope burn. Ha <laughs> ha, the government, I don't think they like me, right? And, and Revelation 13 is like, look, man, expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And the way you prepare for it is by tightening your grip on Jesus and saying, whatever, Lord, your will be done. If my money goes, if my job goes, if my freedom goes, if whatever goes, my grip on you is here. And when things get hard in life, That's when you develop the calloused hand of faith. That's when you say over and over again, Jesus is my life. And there is hope, though. There is hope because it feels like the beast is inevitable and unstoppable. But the people of the Lamb, it says in verse 8b, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So what does that mean? It means that there are people of the Lamb who have their names written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. And that means this, that the beast's reign seems secure. His grip on the world seems secure, but the lamb's grip on his people is far more secure. The people who hold tightly to the lamb look up to find that it is the lamb holding tightly to them. That's the first beast. Second beast, deception. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb. Aw. And it spoke 
like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And also, it causes... All, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. All right, guys, we're into it now. This is the stuff. Now, this beast, what do we, what do we see here? This beast is different from the first. We see immediately in its introduction, I pause there, that it looked kind of like a lamb. It looked almost a little bit like Jesus. It looked kind. It looked harmless. But come close and you hear from within it the voice of a dragon. This is a beast of deception. This is a, in some sense, a religious beast. It's actions point people to worship the first beast. And it can do amazing things with demonic power. And if the original audience were reading this, they would have been thinking, that sounds familiar. It sounds like the imperial cult. Because in Asia Minor, uh, the Roman, sort of celebrating the Roman government and Roman rule was a big thing. The cities in Asia Minor would compete for who could build a work to the new emperor. There was a, it was a worship cult around the emperor that, that perhaps wasn't exactly explicit that everybody had to participate in worshiping the emperor, but they worked the cities so that if you weren't there worshiping the emperor, you stood out. So that if you weren't there, well, maybe next week nobody wants to buy goods from you. Maybe next week the social invitations dry up. In other words, nobody's holding a sword to your throat saying, go worship the beast. This beast is like, come on, everyone's doing it. Everyone's here. And you're like, oh, that little lamb looks so sweet. Let's follow it, right? That's this beast. Now, in the original day, there would be literal idol statues, but Scripture sees that idolatry is really anytime we put something or someone in the place of God in our heart. When we make something the source of our affection and joy and hope and future, when we obey it absolutely and fully. So you see the, the, the push and pull of this, the carrot and the stick. The first beast is the stick. Smack, smack, you know, get over there, smack. The second beast is, oh, but it's so nice over here. Don't you want to be over here? Everyone's over here. We're just all hanging out, having a good time worshiping the beast, right? This is how they work together. If the first beast is sort of the hard power of the state, the second beast is soft power of worship, influence, economic, and social pressure. Its attack doesn't even always look like an attack. Now, you're probably wondering here, okay, well, tell us about the marking of the head and the hand. Remember, this is revelation. This is apocalyptic literature. This is symbolic. And if you know your Bible, you're, you're saying, that sounds familiar, didn't God in Deuteronomy 6 cause his people to be marked 
by the head and the hand, that God's word should be that near to them at all times? Yes. What it's doing is it's flipping Deuteronomy 6 and saying, okay, instead of being marked by the Lord, these people and people who follow it are marked by the beast. Now, here, the beast cultural war results in the worshiping of the beast, the first beast, and worshiping of the dragon, and then that's coupled with the 666 reference, right? Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, what's up with that? I have always wondered what's up with the 666 beast. Now, here's the deal. If you read, mostly when you read the Bible, you read 10 commentators, they, there's like two options. Okay, it's either this or this. This 666 thing, I'm telling you, you read 10 commentators, you get 12 opinions. Because you're like, it could be this, it could be that, right? Some people have said, well, according to the, the, this particular numerology of the day, it could spell Nero Caesar. That's one option. Um, or it could spell beast. It's just reinforcing. What, what is this? Well, I'm going to give you what I think is the most straightforward answer and, and the one that lines up with the markings, Okay. In the Bible, the number seven references God and completion. Number six is the day man was created, right? So this, in a sense, is man to the third power, but never reaching seven, its completion in God. So the number six references sinful humanity, and it's six to the third power. This is humanity kind of... Uh, to the, to the ultimate degree. It's everyone on earth who says, man is ultimate, humanity is ultimate, I worship myself, no one can tell me how to live my life. That is the mark of the beast. And here's the terrifying truth. We're not waiting for the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is here already. The mark of the beast is symbolically on anyone who says, God's not going to tell me how to live my life. I tell me how to live my life. That is what? Antichrist. As John said, that's going to be everywhere. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, well, what does this sound and look like, this deception? Well, I want to tell you a story we hear over and over in our culture and see if you recognize any of it, okay? What does it sound like? for it to look like a lamb but have the voice of a dragon that results in the exaltation of humanity and the beast instead of God. Well, maybe this. Once upon a time, there was a young girl. Her family and or her culture always made her do things and conform, but she was special. She was different. And one day, she decided to trust herself, to be true to herself to listen to the voice down deep inside her. No one could tell her what to do. She had to decide for herself. She broke free. She escaped. She made her own wrong and right. And, and eventually, everyone saw just how special she was, and she found a community that loved and accepted and celebrated her. And now she is beautiful. Now she is strong. Now she is happy. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. 
Now, there are some true and beautiful things in there. God did make everyone with unique dignity and worth. And it's true that some cultural norms should be rejected. They're they're just not lining up with God's word. But behind that, here's what I think you hear behind that. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are there. There's the fruit. What does the serpent, the dragon, say? He says, why don't you you eat some of that? And Eve says, oh, no, no, we're not supposed to even touch it. And the dragon says, did God really say? Starts questioning the word of God. And then the dragon says, God doesn't want you to do that because he knows when you eat it, you will be like him. Do you hear the voice? Then you'll, be, then you'll be strong. Then you'll be beautiful. Then you'll decide what's right and wrong for you. Then you'll be true to your truest self. This, I think, is, is an example of the appearance of a lamb but the voice of a dragon. Be true to yourself. The old rules just hold you back. And here's what happens. We internalize that. We worship the self. We break free of parental rules and hook up with our boyfriend or girlfriend because it feels right. We decide that same-sex relationships are right because they feel right to us. We decide two genders are too limiting, so we choose or create another. We decide our husband or wife is holding us back, so we break free in divorce. And then here's the reality. This second beast, this religious beast, is happy to provide a flavor of religion to suit and support this rebellion. Maybe a a welcoming, non-judgmental, every truth is your truth Buddhism. Or maybe a church that calls itself a Christian church that exalts you and health and wealth and tells you that you're amazing and beautiful. You just listen to the voice down deep inside and do whatever it says. And so we leave churches that teach things that don't quote unquote feel right to us, that feel out of step with the rest of the culture. And here is what is so deadly. In the end, we think it's our idea where Revelation 13 says, no, you are being led by the dragon to your doom. Here's the reality. The dragon hates the image of God. He's not leading you along. Oh, come over here. You'll find fulfillment and peace and satisfaction over here. Come here, come here, come here. But inwardly, he's going, he's laughing. Inwardly, he's rejoicing as we walk like lemmings to our doom. We think being true to ourselves is true to ourselves. In reality, we're just listening to the voice of the dragon say, did God really say? Did God really say? Here are a few ways that this can play out. I'm just going to very briefly tick through these. One, the idol of money. In America, we feel a constant pull of defining ourselves by our financial metrics. We worship money and what it can buy us, comfort, security, luxury, pleasure. Really, behind all the advertising, behind all the stuff around us, behind the social pressure is the word obey, buy, more, now. Shepard Ferry, the the artist behind the Obey campaign, did this famous thing where he said $801 bills around the country, with regular dollar bill, with the word, with with an image on it, and he called the campaign, the Obey image on it, and he called the campaign, this is your God. He could see it. There's also the idol of state. This is explicitly here. 
We as Americans are in view here as well. We begin to believe that our country, our party, our favorite political leader, this branch of government, uh, they will save us. They will give us security and peace and prosperity and hope. When they win, we're elated, and when they lose, we're crushed. Or the idol of sex. Since Freud's influence, we often see everything in life as relating to sexual desires and biological urges. The message everywhere is it's essential, it's normal, it's natural, it's beautiful. What do you hear behind that? Obey, 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 conform. Which is why later, as we'll see, the, the people of God explicitly push back on this. Or last, as we mentioned, the idol of identity. I think this is many times the idol underneath all idols. We worship ourselves. We look for our truth. We want to be true to ourselves. Really what we hear is obey. And the challenge is there's often a grain of truth in each of these idols. Like resources that God provides are good. Having things that are nice can be good. The state can be used for good. Sexuality was a good gift. Our identity is precious and unique. But just as the two beasts look like God, so do these idols. They look just a little bit like him, but behind them is the voice of the dragon. So what is the call for the church here? Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. This call is for wisdom, not just about the number 666, but about all of life. It takes biblical wisdom to see through the deceptions around us. The book of Revelation is a call to wisdom and seeing through deception around us. How then do we see? How can we see, okay, that looks like a a lamb, but its voice is kind of low, you know? How do we see the dragon? How do we hear the voice of the dragon? With this, with this, this is what helps us. Look, if any of the stuff I just mentioned is a struggle for you, or like, well, I don't think same-sex you know, relationships are wrong, or I don't think this gender stuff is wrong, I think it's fine. I just want to urge you, brother or sister, look through the lens of the Bible, and rather than going, what feels right, go, what does the Lord say is right? Christianity is following Jesus and beginning to conform our thinking more and more and our feelings even more and more to the truth of the word. So let me ask you the question, who are you listening to the most? What voices shape you? Everything is telling you to obey. Everything. The songs you nod your head to, the Netflix show you're binging, the news sites you soak up, you take it in constantly. So let me ask you, brother, sister, how much do you take in God's word? How much do you hear his voice? How often are you in church under the word of God? How often are you sitting across from people with your Bible open? How often is your Bible open personally? This is a call for wisdom. Look, two raging beasts are roaring across the face of the earth. And many times Christians just get up and have a coffee and listen to a song and go to work like nothing's going on. We are at war. And we are in danger of either compromise or buckling under pressure. We must, 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 let me plead with you, must be in the word of God. Look, if if you are on news sites for your favorite political party or preference more than in the word of God, you will be shaped more by them. You cannot take in God's word a tiny drip at a time and expect it to transform your thinking as you listen constantly to the messages of obey, 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 obey. Hear the verse of the Lord. 
All right, last and brief. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, this is too long. The lamb. We got to end with the lamb. Verse, Revelation 14, verse 1, this is our hope. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had, listen, his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind is first fruits for the God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Oh, church, look at, notice the geographic imagery here. Th- think of it this way. On this level, on the earth, they're, they're just flooded with evil. This beast is smacking people with a stick saying, obey or else. This other beast is you know, offering a carrot saying, come over here, obey. It's so much better. It's so much nicer. Everyone is doing it. And all of this is awash with evil. But above it all stands Mount Zion overlooking it all with the lamb there and his people secured. Look, we are not, the church is not in danger of like, oh no, what if the beasts win? No. The lamb is on an entirely different level. And standing with him are the 144,000. We've covered that this symbolically represents God's people for all time from every tribe and language and nation and people. And they are before the throne of God. They are in the inmost place of God's throne room. And while below the worship song is to the beast and the dragon, there is a different song coming from Mount Zion, church. This song, listen, this song is like a roar with thunder, with beauty indescribable. Oh, church, and man, we were singing that second song and the band dropped out and the church sang out. You could hear a glimpse of the roar coming from Mount Zion that will eventually drown out And destroy the song of the dragon. And the song is unique. The the redeemed have a song that the angels in heaven don't have. The elders in heaven don't have. Why? Because it is unique to the song of the redeemed. And look, verses 4 and 5, you're like, okay, wait, what's with the literal virgins and the people that never say a lie? I think that is symbolic. Meaning, these are people who have not given themselves over to the sexual immorality of the world despite the enticements of the beast. These aren't people who have never said a lie. These are people who try to conform their speech to the lambs and are now in status pure and blameless because of that word redeemed. Romans 3, 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are If you could say it this, number six. That's where we're stuck. But are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's the difference between the people down below and the people above on Mount Zion? It is not that these people got, were so good they climbed the ladder of Mother Teresa goodness and finally summited Mount Zion. No! 
These are people who said, I have fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, Lamb, will you take my sins? Oh, Lamb, will you cover me? And it is the Lamb's joy to bring them to Mount Zion. Look, this, friend, if, if you're listening and you don't know Christ, here is the reality. Everyone is either marked by the dragon or the Lamb. You might think, no, 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 I'm not on either team. I'm just on my team. Well, sure, that's what the dragon wants you to think. Dragon's like, good, got him. Oh, but church, the offer of the lamb stands. He says, I will buy you with my blood. My, my sacrifice in your place will bring you to a place of purity. The beasts may rage. It may see, they may seem inevitable, but it is a lamb who is inevitable. Here, here then is the application. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. What, what gives us power to endure the attacks of the first beast? What gives us the strength to resist the deception and temptations of the second beast? It is knowing that we have been redeemed and bought and secured and flowing from that. There is in our hearts this, this phrase, I will follow the lamb wherever he goes. Like, I'm so grateful that we got to announce Vince and Christy moving to Prague. I respect them so much because as long as I've known them, this has been their attitude. Going to Prague the first time and coming back to the U.S. and coming to our church and returning back, their attitude has been, I will follow you wherever you go. Church, Revelation 14 says that should not be the, no, the, the aberration. It's like, wow, those people are crazy. They actually are moving across the world for Jesus. Wow. Now, Revelation is like, that's the default for Christians. Every Christian, every day, asking, Lord, where do you want me to go? I will follow you wherever you go. Would you stand and let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we end here, Lord, this would be our heart. Lord, that, that seeing the danger, in a sense, that you have pulled us away from, that you have brought us from this swirling, kind of tumultuous, dragon-filled world to be secure on Mount Zion. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with gratefulness. Lord, that, that, that we would be amazed yet again that you have redeemed us. That even though we all fall short of the glory of God, we can be justified and redeemed and saved by the Lamb. And I pray then that our heart would be I will follow you wherever you lead. I pray that you would help us as a church, God, to be, be discerning. We would understand when we hear the beast and need to run. That we'd also have calloused hands of endurance to grip you tightly through any storm and trial. And we say, Jesus, lead on. Amen.